This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Learn more at exactsciences.com. Welcome to Cap Times Talks, a podcast bringing you smart conversations about big topics in the city of Madison. I'm Natalie Yar, producer of Cap Times Podcasts. Today, we're bringing you a conversation on gentrification in Madison, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Cap Times local government reporter Abigail Becker spoke with a housing analyst, a real estate developer, a Southside resident, and the coordinator of a homelessness prevention program about the numbers and the experiences that show how our neighborhoods are changing. The free Cap Times talk, hosted on Wednesday at the High Noon Saloon, touched on some tough issues and some straightforward solutions. Without further ado, here's Abigail and the panel. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for being here. We have an excellent lineup of panelists. So I'm going to just give a brief bio of everyone here. So when I say your name, just give a wave and a, and a big smile to the crowd. Um, so first, we've got Matt Wachter, and he's worked for the city since 2011. Um, recently, the mayor uh, just appointed him as director of planning, community, and economic development. Previously, he served as the manager of real estate services for the city and as the city's housing initiative specialist. So he knows a lot, a lot of numbers about housing in the city. Um, next, we have Anne Noir Morrison. I hope I got that right. Um, she's a real estate developer based here in downtown Madison. She's also a shareholder with Urban Land Interest and New Year Investments. She's a member of the city's housing strategy committee and also serves on the boards of Downtown Madison, Inc. and the Madison Development Corporation. Next, we've got Belinda Richardson. She's a program coordinator at The Road Home, which helps homeless children and families find stable housing. And last but not least, we have Ananda Marilli. She's a member of the school board, was very busy tonight at an event um, for the search for a new, new superintendent. So we really appreciate her doing double duty and being here. Um, she's also the board chair for Forward Community Investment um, and is the grant director to address racial disproportionality and special education for the Wisconsin Department of Public Instruction. So why don't you give them all a round of applause and thank them for being here. All right. So Madison's population continues to grow, and all these new residents need a place to live. Madison added over 15,000 households between 2008 and 2017, but the vacancy rate remains low, making it hard to find housing. Um, It's also harder to find affordable housing, um, you know, when you're paying no more than 30% of your income uh, going toward rent in Madison if you're a person of color. And rents seem to be increasing rapidly. The median rent in Madison increased 23% over the most recent five-year period that census data is available. Um, and costs for owning a home have followed a similar pattern. So bottom line, really a constrained housing market and rising income inequality can lead to gentrification and displacement, rapidly changing neighborhoods. Um, so Matt, I'd like to start with you and just ask really, how do we define gentrification? What does it mean? And also, does it look different in Madison than in other places across the U.S.? Sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think when people talk about gentrification, they're talking about a handful of different things. So, I mean, on on one hand, neighborhoods are always changing. People are leaving, new people are coming in. 
You know, a parking lot becomes an apartment building, and some of that is just part of living in a city and normal kind of things happening. Then I think when, when the city talks about gentrification, we're talking about some of that happening really, really quickly and a neighborhood rapidly changing in sort of the, the racial composition of the neighborhood, the incomes of people in the neighborhood, all of that that is, that is disruptive um, and is not maybe the normal sense of things. Um, and, and so we pay attention to that. But then the thing that, that we really try to focus on and is the subject of recent city reports is um, displacement. And that is when households are forced to move out of a neighborhood because things like uh, prices are, are rising so quickly that people can't stay where they are and they're getting pushed out. And that's the thing that we really are probably most concerned about. Um, and then in some cases, neighborhoods have, have already changed so much that there's just not an opportunity for someone to move to that neighborhood that they might want to live in. Um, and then is it different in Madison than other places? Um, probably, a, I mean, a little bit in that this pressure is pretty constant in Madison because we are growing, not, you know, we're not... Uh, Austin or someplace like that, but for a upper Midwest mid-sized city, we have really strong, consistent growth, which is constantly pushing pressure on our market um, because you've got this also this constant influx of new people, and we have a hard time accommodating them. So while we're adding lots and lots of people, we're not adding units quite as quickly, um, and so that is not completely unique to Madison, but. Uh, is relatively unique to us. Mm-hmm. And Belinda, I, I saw you nodding there. I'm, I'm hoping you can explain a little bit more about what the road home does and, and what you see in your job in working with, with families. So we are a social service agency that works in, um, that provides services in Madison. We work with families, strictly with families, so you must have a minor child in the home in order to be eligible for our services. And um, when we're talking about gentrification, that has been happening like for a very long time where um, for years um, the cost of um, housing has been increasing and it has been um, affecting our families directly. So as Matt stated, there is times where families are feeling like they're being pushed out of neighborhoods because of the price of housing has increased and um, they're just not able to afford it. And so how hard is it for the road home to find affordable housing for these families who've been priced out of where they're currently living? Um, so a lot of times we it is difficult when we're working with families to find affordable housing because as the prices of housing continue to rise, the wages are not um, rising. So a lot of times we have families that are working for a time but are just making minimum wage, and that is not enough to... Um, to afford the the high cost of living in Madison. Mm -hmm. So we are very, we try to be creative as an agency um, to find ways that we can support families with the increased cost of um, housing. And that means through finding funding sources that can help with subsidy to supplement the income or creating program program housing that um, we partner up with other, um, with developers to 
um, find affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So this might be a question for, for Matt or Anne, but what are signs that a neighborhood is gentrifying? I know you mentioned um, a report that I know went into a, a couple of different factors um, to explain what we're sort of seeing in Madison. So I'm hoping you can sort of explain some of those indicators and uh, maybe do that through an example of a neighborhood. Sure. So um, this report that I have in front of me that I'm going to reference a lot. Uh, the, it's a good report. You all should read it. Equitable development in Madison. So what it does is it it looks at first are there are you is a neighborhood at risk of gentrification? And that would be if there's say a high percentage of people are renters. Um, if a high percentage of people in that neighborhood are lower income. Uh, if a higher percentage are people of color. The the report sort of categorizes the neighborhood has the potential that it could be gentrified because those populations and those types of units are, are more likely to see change. Um, but then when it starts to measure, well, is something actually gentrifying? It looks at two pieces. One, are prices, the sort of the average price of houses or apartment units going up really quickly? That's a warning sign that it, it's gentrifying. Um, and then on the other side, it looks at census data and are we rapidly seeing the, that there's a big influx of high-income households? Are we seeing sort of rapid demographic change in age, race, um, whatever, that the, the people are changing as well? And so those are the two things that we're measuring, and it sort of categorizes neighborhoods into, well, something's at risk, but nothing is measurably changing today. Um, it's in some sort of various stage of gentrification because we're seeing one of those things start to move. Um, and then is a place, has it sort of already gentrified because it's high prices or whatever? Um, so examples of these, um, it sort of classifies downtown Capitol Square as sort of already an ongoing gentrification um, because it is a high-income neighborhood and there are not opportunities for people. Um, and would, na- and would that include like where we are? Like where, you know, what about the East Wash Corridor? Does that Yeah, does that so count? it looks at it looks at census tracts is how yeah. it sort of breaks up because that's how the data comes. Um, when we look at sort of the East Washington Corridor, it's relatively stable. And I think it's because when you look at the data, um, while there's been lots and lots of uh, new construction market rate apartments. There's also been a lot of um, subsidized apartments built at the same time. It's not a perfect one-for-one match, but it's sort of, you know, it's it's sort of balanced out the growth that's happened um, a bit. Whereas when we look at a neighborhood um, like Atwood sort of area, Mm -hmm. that's gentrifying right now because house prices are, are going up, rents are going up, you're seeing the actual population changing. So that's a strong example of a neighborhood that is sort of well into gentrification per the data. Um, And then places that are really sort of show up as at risk are a lot of the north and south sides of Madison. And that's, again, because there are are concentrations of rental housing, um, lower income populations, those people of color, those sorts of measures. Yeah. You mentioned South Madison, which I, you know, as you said, I think is, is on the cusp, right, of, of that, that gentrification process. So, Ananda, I was hoping, you know, we chatted, you know, previously about um, you know, your time as a Southside resident, and I'm hoping you can sort of, um, you know, share with everyone here just what you have noticed, um, you know, yeah. living on the Southside, um, what it was like when you first moved here, and then um, what it is now. 
Thanks, Abby. I, I wanted to first start by um, sharing a little bit about how I got to be in this panel. Is that okay? Sure. So um, when the panel first announced, and, and I think it showed that Matt was going to be on a panel, and maybe Anne, and I was like, oh, how about having a perspective of a person that actually are seeing and experiencing gentrification? And so that's why I reached out to you to have a conversation. I did not know that it was going to lead to an invitation, but I certainly appreciate. Um, and hence, I'm here. And I think uh, I was having a conversation with Matt earlier. When people look like me, right? So you read my a little bit of my bio. I have multiple jobs. I serve in multiple boards, including in the Madison School Board. I have a full-time job with the state of Wisconsin. I'm a single mother. Uh, the only place I could afford four years ago was the South Side uh, to rent. To rent. I rented a, a, a two-bedroom on Rimrock Road in a corner of Rimrock and Moreland Road. How many of you know where that is? Okay, thank you. About a third of you. Um, I rent an apartment there, and it was $650 per month and included heat. Um, great. Next year, the rental increased another 50. Next year, another 80. And by that time, people are already telling me, like, you know, with, this, with the rental going this way, you could actually afford, you know, a two-bedroom in your neighborhood. And that's what I did. I, I purchased a condo, a two-bedroom condo, on the south side, down, uh, down, the, down from uh, Moreland Road. And so I think it's important to, to have voices. I mean, I, I appreciate the report. And the report is, is, you know, is well done to the extent of my ability to read and see graphs. However, it misses my story, right, and the stories of people that when they get to their apartment complex and they see every other neighbor with a pink slip saying that they're being uh, infected uh, because they can no longer afford to pay for their rental, right? And it, the, the issue is, like, people like me are in that constant fear. And I know, you know, job loss and, and illness and, and crisis can happen in everybody's life. Uh, but there are uh, a part of our population in Madison where those fears are, are much closer, right? Like, I've, I've worked in this community, I've lived in this community for 16 years now, and I have been fired twice. How many of you have been fired from your job in Madison? Three or four of you. Someone very excited to have been fired. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're a single parent with no... Uh, other family, no other support. Uh, all my family is in Brazil. They all live in rental properties. Right? I'm the only person in my generation that actually own uh, a, a, a home. Right? Uh, it's it's a little scarier. Right? Uh, so I think that's the conversation that we don't want to talk about, and uh, we often shy about the conversation and. We haven't been courageous enough to actually engage in conversations with people like me that are experiencing that. Or we wanted to make a lot of assumptions about what is it like to be uh, living in the South Side. Well, I'm glad that you're here to, to share thank maybe you. a point of view that has been missing. So thank you. I, um, and we have not forgotten you at the end of this table it's here. Right. I'm enjoying this. I'm this <laughs> learning a lot. So you share with me that you know you grew up in Madison, um, then you left and worked in housing policy in Minnesota and Illinois, and you also worked in the city of New York, also in housing. 
Did I do I remember all that right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. Um, so I'm, I'm curious um, what changes, of course, focused on housing that you noticed, you know, after, um, you know, returning to Madison here, um, you know, and I'm, then I'm also curious, you know, how you think gentrification might manifest differently in other places, you know, than in Madison. So um, I'll let you take it away. Great. Um, can everyone hear me? Uh, thanks. Thanks, Ananda, for sharing your story. Um, I'm from Madison. My first house is about um, a few blocks from here on Butler Street, and I grew up uh, near downtown. And as Abby mentioned, I moved away in um, 1997, and I moved back in 2009. And the bulk of that time, I was in New York City. And um, I agree that some of the reports on displacement and gentrification are um, wonderful for data nerds. Um, but they don't capture some of, uh, you know, some of the signs that we can see of gentrification and change that everyone can recognize without looking at a charter graph. Um, working in New York City, I worked throughout the boroughs, um, and I did a lot of work, especially in East New York, which is farther than most people have probably been to on the subway. Um, but, you know, there, when you work in some of the neighborhoods that are uh, lower income in New York and are changing, the first sign of gentrification that people see isn't always a pink slip. It's usually in New York. At the time I was working with tenants, they said the first sign is a white woman with a stroller. Um, you know, there are a lot of white women with strollers in Madison, so that's not a good sign. Um, but, uh, you know, I think some of the signs that we intuitively see... Um, you know, as I walk neighborhoods, and one of my nerdy habits, aside from looking at graphs, is doing turf for political campaigns. I love to do it for some reason. And I've done your neighborhood like three times, so I've probably come to your door. Thank I know, you. like, I'm like, oh, I can picture where that is. And you really can when you start to do the same neighborhoods uh, year after year, and you go in the door, and you see the different people answering mm -hmm. and what language they're answering. You get um, That's the way I've gotten a better sense of Madison mm -hmm. and what's changed. Um, I think we can intuitively see gentrification in our neighborhoods when every other house has a construction dumpster out front. That means a lot of people are investing in new kitchens and new bathrooms and they're renovating, and that's a really good thing. But it also is a sign that this is an area we need to keep an eye on um, to make sure that the change isn't so much that we're displacing people. And I think one thing I whispered in Matt's ear beforehand is how, how do we know that gentrification is displacement? And I think that's a, a hard thing to measure and to understand. Um, again, I moved away, came back. In the years that I was gone, I think Madison's population had gone up some 15%. So there were a lot of changes. Some of the ones that I saw, um, the bigger ones I saw were that uh, Students were moving, we were building high-rises, students were moving out of the near neighborhoods, out of single-family homes and that they had used as rentals, and um, downtown, which was great, paved the way for um, more, more um, non-student households to use those units, and I think it was a positive thing for Madison. Um, you know, when, it, when I left Madison, I had the sense that it was only for students and for married people with children and not a great place to be a young professional and certainly not like a single young professional. And I think that really has changed. Um, Epic was a company I had not heard of in the 90s that it was obviously very big when I moved back here. And I, you know, a lot of that, um, you know, we see the impact of a lot of those companies coming to Madison and the employment base that they bring. And it brings a lot of awesome things like this, you know, High Noon was not here when I left, Bree Stevens, you know, things that we really value as a community. Uh, mm -hmm. But they impact the people who were here before those things came. Definitely. Okay. I, um, 
I have some more questions, and we're getting some audience questions, so thank you for these. One a quick one. Um, Matt, can you provide the name of the city's report on housing and gentrification? Someone would like to know that. It is the Equitable, Equitable Development White Paper is the one I've been referring to. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, I did not name this. <laughs> they did not ask me. And but but since I have, have named it? Since I have your attention... Um, Here's the challenge, right? Like the what Anne was explaining, like around the great things, right? The investment in, you know, uh, the parks, the the access to fresh and organic public uh, markets, the 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 rec- the parks and recreation, the lakes, the music festival, all the amazing things, the bike paths. Like it's so beautiful, right? But when you go to the south side, thank you. <laughs> Because for the two, three of you that are clapping, you know that is a different city. The moment that you that you go down Park Street and Park Street becomes Park Street and Southside, the moment that you cross the Belt Line and Rimrock becomes Southside, it's a whole other story. There is no like easy. We have a Walmart. Right? Or a pick and save that the other day that they wanted to change that. Right? Mm-hmm. The festivals are far in between. You know, the, the access to, 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 to fresh produce is, is challenging. Uh, every once in a while, like I, I live, we live close to a, a sewage. And so it's a part of the city that also stinks, literally. Mm-hmm. Right? And so where is the microphone to kind of elevate those voices? And I'm only bringing, like, one perspective, my story. I'm not speaking to everyone that lives in the South Side by no means. And I did not grow up in the South Side, so it's a whole other story, right? But I think that is what we needed to be elevated, is that the same time that we uh, sort of give gold stars for all the beauty and all the things that Madison offer, we have to figure out how we're going to reconcile with parts of the city that... We don't have that, that we don't invest that. Or that we say, you know what, not this year, next year. Oh, and not in this budget, the next budget, the next election, the next something. And then, and then 10 years from now, I'm having a conversation with Matt. It's like, so Matt, I make $73,000 a year. How am I going to f- ever afford to live downtown? Mm-hmm. Please answer. Well, so, so let's talk about that. I think you raise um, a really good point about how does the city, how do, how do we as a community, how do we balance investment in neighborhoods, um, you know, with, with then also making sure that the people who are living in those neighborhoods can remain where, where they are. Um, does it, anyone can chime in here. <laughs> yeah, how, how do we, you know, how do we add, add to bike paths and how do we, um, you know, you know, bring like Ananda was saying, you know, fresh food and public markets and all those things that I think a lot of people like about Madison to neighborhoods, then while also, um, you know, watching how that affects, um, you know, the, the price of homes, the price of rent. Yeah, so, I mean, all of those great investments that make a place, you know, more desirable um, to live in also can have the effect of making them more desirable and people who can pay more are going to come and, you know, bid up the price of real estate, of units, of whatever. And so if we look to the, the city's, you know, toolbox of tools, um, we have, you know, we have a program for all sorts of stuff, um, and that can be, you know, making sure that 
if we think a place is likely to see gentrification, to make sure that we're getting ahead of it and encouraging developers to, to build affordable housing. We have programs that help people who are already homeowners stay in their houses, make necessary renovations. Um, we have you know, a wide variety of programs there. We also have programs that help people you know, buy homes in those neighborhoods that you know, we can in income restrict those. And I would say we've got a lot, a lot of programs. What we haven't done a great job of is making sure that those programs are targeted towards places. A lot of times they're sort of general for people. So we have a, a down payment assistance program, and you can buy anywhere in the city, but we don't have one that, that makes sure that, all right, on the south side, people can who want to live there, who rent there, can, can, can buy into their neighborhood. And those are all things that, this, that we're looking at, and you know, it's just you know, modifying that tool to get the, more of the outcomes that we want. Um, so I'd say the, the last five years, a lot of our focus has been, how do you take a, a East Washington Corridor, University Avenue, places that are, are gentrifying, high-risk gentrifying, already gentrified, and we add more units. And we've added, you know, a 1,000 units of housing mostly in those places. And I think the next five years is looking at, well, these, these are places that our data or normal people can tell are at risk of gentrification. And how do we get ahead of it and try to, you know, deal with things before people are displaced? Um, and I think these reports, you know, sort of give us some guidance on what to look for and how to modify our tools to address that. Mm -hmm. This is um, sort of a related question, and it's, it's one from the audience. So the question from the audience is, is gentrification all bad? And I think that... Um, I, I asked Matt that question <laughs> before we got Yeah, right, gentrification definitely, I think, has a negative connotation, but sometimes what we see in a gentrified neighborhood, we might characterize as a good thing, more, more amenities, rising, you know, home values, right? I, you know, I don't think we would want to see, you know, declining or, or stagnant home values because I, I don't think that's a good sign, um, you know, for a city. So uh, how do we, you know, come to terms with those, with those two conflicting ideas? Yeah, Matt. Anyone who chime in. Right, so, so investments, you know, seems like a good thing. Adding amenities, coffee shops, parks, all that kind of stuff. People like those things. Um, in general, you know, real estate values going up seems like it'd be better than them going down because then we'd have other problems. It's really, with all of this growth, how do you manage some of the side effects that, that go with it is really what I think we're all talking about. Um, and making sure that you know, some of this change isn't so fast that people, you know, can't keep up with it. Um, so, yes, a lot of those things are good, mm -hmm. but it is the side effects of, of it that we need to sort of manage or really help, help people, you know, deal with it and try to avoid some of the, the worst of those. Do you want to jump in, Ananda? I mean... Um, any form or threat of displacement of people like me, I will say it's bad. I mean, like, it's, I'm, I'm biased because I'm brown, right, and I'm an immigrant. So, um, so it's bad because it means that I can't afford to live in a city. It means that people around me are, don't look like me. But, you know, there is the other part. It's like it may be good for some people to live around people that look like them, that smell like them, that cook like them, that have the same dogs like them, that have you know the you know the, you know the children that look like their children, you know that listen to the same music. That, so it it might be great in that, but I wanted to hope that I'm living in a city that actually 
really want to see people like me thriving. And, and if that's the case, we got to really, at some point, put those reports aside and actually make some really bold decisions. I got a chance to, because I, I'm in community development, um, and I got a chance to go to Michigan, to Detroit area, which, uh, you know, had the sort of the ebbs and flows of gentrification. People got pushed out and displaced and all sort of things are happening. And uh, there are folks there doing some really innovative things uh, in Grand Rapids and Detroit and other, other, other areas. And what they're, they're doing is that as soon as the, the city sees uh, development coming, uh, for example, the Madison College, which I'm also sitting on the Madison College board and I keep bringing up the gentrification on the South, uh, South Park Street, is as soon as they know, like, okay, so Madison College is going to be there. It's a, it's, a higher, you know, it's a higher education institution. It's going to start attracting some business. We know that gentrification was already happening on the South Park Street. See, this is what we're going to do. We're going to purchase land in here. We're going to purchase this thing here because we know developers are, are sitting on this land and waiting. Right, you go on a Remrock corridor. There's like, uh, you know, all this land. There's Park Street. You see like these abandoned buildings because people are waiting for the market value. Which I get it. People need to be more rich than they already are. I, I'm not going to debate that. But but here's here's where the city can do something about. But it has to be something bold and creative. We can't just continue to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. I do want to live in a, a downtown. If anybody wants to sell a downtown place, affordable, like I am looking to move downtown. Mm-hmm. I found downtown beautiful. I wanted to bike to work. I wanted to walk to like the co-op. I want to do all those things, like like all of you do, right? And but where is the opportunity for that? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, from here, I can only go somewhere else. Yeah. I won't be able to, and I'm bound to because I got another two years of service. So I got to live in the city, mm-hmm. right? And so there is implications for people like me to be here. And there is implications on all of you here to figure out how you're going to reconcile mm-hmm. of, like not having your house double the amount of money. Like I've been watching, double the amount of money. Then it's like, mm, maybe my house can just, you know, uh, increase 20000 And then we can have this entire neighborhood that flourish, you know, alongside my housing. And that is a complicated uh, decision to make. And it has a lot to do with our moral values. And people need to figure out how to reconcile with that. Yeah, Belinda. So I would, I would actually like to address kind of some of the statements that you made. Sure. Um, obviously, you can see that I am a black woman, and yes. I do, yes. <laughs> and I do agree with a lot of the things that you stated. Where a lot of times, where is a place where, as a person of color, I can go and my neighbors look like me, um, and I can feel accepted in a neighborhood, or I can afford a place downtown where we know the the prices are extremely high. And I think the one thing that the city has been doing is really encouraging developers to, um, to partner with nonprofits um, in creating affordable housing. Um, through the Road Home, we've created a partnership with Stonehouse Development that provided the families that we serve affordable units. So they, um, we have nine units, really down the street um, at the Breeze, right behind the Lyrics Department, 
they provided nine units, three bedroom townhouses at a very affordable prices. Um, just even doing the walkthrough there, and I think at market rate, a two bedroom was almost eighteen hundred dollars, and that was like that's affordable, but they said that that was affordable for that area. But through that development, I mean, through that relationship and that partnership, we were able to get those three-bedroom units at a very reasonable price under um, $700, which a lot of times, that's what our families are able to afford, and they're very nice units, because a lot of times when you think about affordability, sometimes it may not be the best units, and, Mm -hmm. you know, why aren't the families that we serve... um, can take advantage of the fresh fruits and vegetables, the nice countertops and things of that mm-hmm. nature. And even, and as we partner with Stonehouse, we were able to, again, create other housing opportunities under Fair Oaks area um, that provided the same structure with three-bedroom townhouses for the families that we're serving. And then also another... Um, another um, housing opportunity and off of the Schrader Road area. Um, Again, the families that we serve, almost 85% of them are people of color. And a lot of times they don't feel accepted in these neighborhoods because of the prices, you know, they can't, aren't able to afford them. But through these partnerships and with the city really pushing developers to partners with nonprofits, it's making that possible for some of the families that we serve in Madison. Mm -hmm. Are they all rentals? Yes. Are they all rentals? Yes. Okay. There's a difference, right, when you rent and then you own. Right. Yeah. So I'm going to loop Ann in on this great right. conversation, but r- just really quick, it's a little after 7.30, so if right. you have more questions, keep writing them down and passing them in. Um, so Ann, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this uh, this conversation here, but and then also I have a question for you, and I'm just curious how you know developers you know think about the potential effects on a neighborhood, um, specifically gentrification and displacement, mm-hmm. you know, as they are coming up with projects and, and working to to implement them. Yeah. Um, you know, we certainly, gentrification is to some degree a, the side effect of a serious supply issue that we have in the city. And um, we can't keep pace with what Matt and Abby said about the number of folks who are coming into Dane County and into Madison. Um, we don't seem to be able to produce enough units as a community to make homes for these folks. And it puts a lot of pressure on the overall market. And the folks that bear the brunt of that pressure are the lowest income people, which are disproportionately people of color, but are, are you know, white people as well. Um, are feeling the brunt as their lowest uh, rent projects are um, increasing in rent. And as developers, we often get the question, why are all the new apartments, you know, luxury or market rate apartments? And there is a reason for it. And, um, you know, most of it is cost driven. Uh, You know, as a developer, after you purchase a piece of land and you go through your public approvals and you pay for the design of your building and you pay for a contractor to construct it, you have a, a cost that you have to recoup through rent. And um, with construction costs are also uh, increasing at a faster rate than rents are. So when you look at new construction that is not subsidized, uh, it's just impossible to get that cost to a point that allows the levels of affordability that a lot of folks want to see in Madison and a lot of, you know, especially our service uh, sector employees need in order to live close to where they work. So the, you know, the um, projects that you you mentioned with Stonehouse um, and with a number of the tax credit developers in town are great projects. They are competing for a very limited... um, Resource, your resource, public resource, which are uh, sale of low-income housing tax credits. Um, 
projects are getting done with low-income housing tax credits in Madison. Um, you know, some of Matt's work to create an affordable housing fund to help boost the impact of those credits is definitely seen. But uh, this is the last kind of big, big federal program that we've seen in, you know, aside from home, you know, in, you know, 40 years. <laughs> and, you know, so we have a federal program that's, you know, out of the 1986 Tax Reform Act that we're all relying on to produce a trickle of affordable housing and that it isn't enough. Um, so I don't think that, you know, I, I can't speak for every developer that owns a surface parking lot on Park Street or Rimrock Road, but my sense is I bet if you talked with them, they're not waiting for something to happen. They just don't have an exit plan because they can't the rents aren't high enough there for them to build. The resources, the subsidies aren't there for them to build affordably. Um, and they're kind of stuck with their properties. And, um, you know, maybe some of them are waiting for them to sell at a higher price so they can retire or whatever, give to their kids or whatever greedy or ungreedy reason you can think of. But um, I think most of them, projects don't pencil there. If anyone's done a renovation on their own home or, you know, rented apartment, you know that just a garage, building a simple garage these days can take fifteen dollars to $20,000. Mm -hmm. um, so it, construction costs are high. Land costs, you know, are high too, but I think construction costs um, are, and, you know, rent, uh, incomes not keeping pace are really exacerbating this problem. But I don't know if I answered your question. Well, uh, <laughs> I a, this is a question from the audience I wanted to make sure we asked, because um, if it ties into yeah. building affordable housing. Um, the question is, how well does it work to encourage developers to build affordable housing? Does it need to be mandated? Um, so I guess, what are we seeing in, in terms of that? So we can't mandate. That's, that's against the law in Wisconsin. We can't tell a developer, if you want to build something, it has to be affordable. Um, it's, we're just not allowed to do that. So it's all carrots. It's all incentives. And like Ann said, our, our biggest incentive that's out there is the um, low-income housing tax credit, which is a competitive <laughs> program. Um, you only get to apply one day a year. Projects have to line up for it. Um, and the city has aligned a lot of its resources to get behind that. So we went from getting one project every other year to now we see four or five a year, and they're the projects that Belinda was talking about. And so that's the city pushing the market with, with money, but also with trying to forge these partnerships between nonprofits and for-profit developers. Um, and so we've built you know, a little over 1,000 units in, in five years, which nowhere near enough, but is way more than we were able to do before this. And really kind of every other federal support program that we have is kind of flatlined, despite the fact that our need is growing, our population is growing. Um, and so, you know, we're just, we try to manage that. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs. Another question from the audience is, um, you know, who is driving the process of gentrification and what policies enable it? Um, so I know Anne had talked about, um, I mean, we've been talking yeah. about uh, just the housing supply, supply and demand. And um, I mean, so is, is that a driving, I know that is a driving factor, but, you know, I guess you... I guess anyone who has moved into a new apartment or new house in the last 10 years is a driver of gentrification. I mean, it's a changing demographic. You disagree, but that's okay. Um, I'm not a but, driver of gentrification. I, okay. But I mean, I think, you know, I think, I, well, I don't, I don't know. But, um, you know, I think that, you know, I don't know that uh, certainly 
developers are investing in neighborhoods changing the character. The city is investing in bike paths or libraries or uh, stadiums and changing the character. But like, what's really changing in neighborhoods is probably that people feel is the people around them, the neighbors they used to know that are no longer there. Um, a lot of it you see in home ownership more than you probably see in rental. Um, but it is, you know, it's a scarce resource, housing, and the scarcity of that resource is really what's driving it and all of our desire to live in a neighborhood that we want to live in. And, um, yeah, so. Right, so, I mean, so if the lack of housing is the problem, I mean, like, how, how quickly, you know, will the city catch up in, in building these units? I mean, are it we... Won't lost yeah. without a no, hope we here? are not keeping pace i mean you know we uh, what are the we, we need to build somewhere between i think 2500 units a year right now we're on track to need to add and you know i, I mean from a developer perspective i would say that you know where we are able to add it you know support it and if you're concerned about your about your community and it changing because there's new housing in it i would say reach out to the people who are doing that development and tell them what you love about your neighborhood. I mean, you're all here because you love your neighborhood and you love your neighbors and you don't want to see that change too much. And so tell, you know, the teams that are working in your neighborhood what you love about it and help them create a development that can encourage, you know, the same things that you um, like about your neighborhood. Would you think we're keeping pace or can keep pace or? So um, <laughs> the sort of end of 2019 vacancy numbers just came out, and so we're at 3% vacancy in our market. Can you explain if that's good or bad so or what that means? 5% 5, 5 <coughs> is considered normal, healthy in the United States, where there's enough vacancy where people have choices, can move around. There's some balance of power between landlords and tenants. Um, in Madison, you know, after coming out of the recession, our vacancy rate dropped like 2%. And despite all the thousands and thousands and thousands of units we've added, we're still only at 3% vacancy. Mm -hmm. So that is telling you that our development market cannot build enough to meet all of this demand. I mean, we've added something like 17,000 new renter households in the last decade. That is a huge amount of pressure on the, the market, supply and demand. Yeah, I feel like we're sort of transitioning here into an area I was hoping we would end up in is talking about um, what we can do, solutions, right? So what I'm curious what the city is currently already doing to try to sort of stem the tide of gentrification and displacement. So, I mean, just this sort of mismatch of supply and demand and sort of building. I mean, we issue building permits. You know, we have plans that allow for it to happen. But again, some of that side effect is then these neighborhoods are seeing change as you know units come in, and so I think as we look to the south side um, with our South Madison plan and some of that, it's going to be looking at how can we we just created a land banking tool to buy land to get ahead of places we think are going to gentrify or there's a need for affordable housing. So, like I said, we're sort of rejiggering our toolkit a bit to sort of get at at those things so the plan will help guide us in sort of what we need to do and where we're looking at all of our tools to say all right the city can buy land the city can work with developers here the city can take its home ownership programs to make sure that they work for people in that place yeah um 
it, the report that we've been uh, mentioning included um, a whole host of you know ideas and, and things for city policymakers to consider. Um, one of the, um, one of those was about adjusting zoning standards, and uh, maybe some of you have been keeping up with um, cities that have eliminated single-family zoning, um, such as Minneapolis. Um, so I'm, I'm curious if you could sort of um, you know walk through maybe some of those maybe bigger, um, larger policy changes that were outlined in the report and talk about if they would even be possible here in Madison to do. You know, I haven't started this job yet. So I'm not up to speed on everything yet. Um, you could talk about conditional use. <laughs> so, um, so part of the comprehensive plan effort that happened, you know, over the last couple of years was looking at do we need to make adjustments to allow for more housing in places that kind of say have the infrastructure for it. You know, there's roads and sewer, and they're served well by grocery stores and uh, schools and that sort of thing. Um, and so there was this effort in there to identify those places and sort of elevate them to allow them to to change. Um, and then there's a lot of really technical things that I think staff is looking at within things like the zoning code to make sure that people can actually build really a wider variety of housing types um, so that it's not just single-family homes and four-story apartment buildings. That There's a lot of stuff that sits in between there that, you know, townhomes and that provide maybe opportunities for affordable home ownership that um, don't exist right now. So that's, um, I just learned this in, in a meeting the other day, so the, the city's plan commission is having a series of work sessions to sort of look at some of those things over the course of 2020 um, that we would, we would want to change. Um, the city's created um, an interdepartmental staff team where we have people from planning, people from community development, people from um, civil rights talking about, well, what are really the issues in our housing market and how is the thing that you're doing affecting our, you know, the, the people that we work with? So I don't know that really answered your question, but there's a, a bunch of these things kind of happening all at the same time. Nanda, you mentioned you had a thought? Yeah, there's someone in the audience. Her name is Maya Pearson, and she lives in the South Side. She's like a third-generation South Sider. And she's a black woman, uh, black mother. She has three children. And I got to know her a little bit better because she's running for, for Madison School Board, which I, I really commend her for that. Um, and she had to fight really hard. She has about three different jobs. Um, and she had to fight really hard to keep the grocery store on Park Street. And I'm just going to bring this up because this has been really, it's been a sore spot for me. A few years ago, the city considered the public market. And Abby, you and I talked about this, and I know that's something that has interested you. Um, and there was um, uh, a couple of reports, several reports to, to do the study where the public market was going to be located. And it was the south side, the north side, and then East Washington. Do you all remember that? conversation. So I was asked to speak on behalf of the South Side, of course. Um, and then there was a, so I'm just going to use very simplistic terms because um, I, the way I understand that is a very simple issue in a very complicated uh, landscape. There was the business case for the public market and there was the uh, social justice um, case for the public market. Unfortunately, the city uh, chose the business case, the economic case, the most financial viable case. 
And of course, that makes a lot of sense. We grew up, uh, most of us grew up saying like, you know, one day, you know, study, go to school, you're gonna get a degree, you're gonna get a job, you're gonna make money, you're gonna buy a house, your house is gonna, you know, worth more money, and then you gotta buy a bigger house and, and whatnot. Like, so we are very conditioned in this thing of more the better, the more, you know, the more uh, 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 economic driven is the better, you know, the, the thing that's more financial, sustainable is the better. And we forget that, like, actually human beings are the driver for uh, our existence, right? And so I'm not just advocating for the South Side because it's the right thing to do. I'm advocating for the South Side because when the South Side is a better place, Madison is a better place for all of us. And I'm here, thank you for the fans, but I'm here not to just be, you know, like, this is not just a slogan, right? This is a, this is a philosophy and a value that I really believe that we all in this room share. What we haven't tapped into it is the, is the boldness and the creativity to actually talk about this in an expensive way, you know, because it's so much easier to say, wait, this thing here has more dollar signs. So it makes more sense for us to do this thing here. And then one day, I hope, that we all collectively decide not to go there, to say, actually, yes, that is great, but this other thing here still has dollar signs associated to it. We're still going to be, you know, the, Madison was not going to break the bank for having the, the, the public market on the south side, right? Like, we weren't going to be in despair, right? Yet, I was told not this year. Right? And then the, we still don't have a public market on the south side. And now we barely you know, could save the, the grocery store that we had. So those are the complicated things that, and, and this is why I found it really important. And I made every effort to be here. I'm, you know, Abby mentioned, like, I had like the zillions of different things today. I find it really important is because people like me, people that live in the south side, are not given a microphone to share those perspectives. How many times we show up over and over again to testify and say, we need a, we need a co-op. I would love to have a co-op. I have all sort of digestive problems. I would love a gluten-free thing, you know, with vegan. I love that stuff. We, I'm praising because I've, we finally have a coffee shop. You know, uh, Finca, I'm just going to plug in for them. An El Salvadorian, go get a quesadilla. It's amazing. We finally have a coffee shop on our... How complicated is this? We have a coffee shop at every corner in Madison. But in the south side, in the Rimrock area, we don't have a coffee shop. We just opened one. So this is the complication that I hope that we live here with. Like, and then you're going to live here, like, and it's going to be complicated, and it's going to be like uncomfortable. And then what are you going to do about it? Right? How do we pressure our mayor? How do we pressure Matt? How do we pressure you know, our community to when a time comes to choose, to, to choose between what is a social justice thing to do and what is the most financial uh, reward thing to do, we're going to do what is right for people. Well, we're, oh. While we're still on solutions, you know, I think um, we're talking about, you know, uh, these big solutions, you know, in terms of, of city policy. But Belinda, I wanted to ask you. I mean, what 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 do you think is the solution? I mean, one, what what does the road home need to help its families? And um, you know, do you have a a big bold vision <laughs> for a solution to all the issues we were talking about tonight? 
Um, I think as far as a solution, what the city has been doing with encouraging developers to partner with nonprofit, I think more of that needs to happen. And then it's not only the downtown area, but other areas where families, you know, choose to live because, you know, we do try to provide choice. I mean, I think everyone has the right to pick what side of town they want to live in. So I think if we have developers that are developing on the north side, you know, encouraging to partner with nonprofit would be um, one thing. And I and I know a lot we're talking about rentals, but, I mean, you did hit the home ownership part as well, too. Buying a home is not affordable. Even with some of the grants that are available to first-time home buyers, that is not it, – it's, it's still – it's hard for um, families that we serve, especially um, black and brown people, to actually afford uh, a decent house that they can call their own and it's their investment and that they can pass on to their, um, to their children. So really looking at ways that we can be creative and um, really sustaining you know, the home ownership, allowing black and brown people to have, um, to have homes and also have the choice to live where they want to live in Madison. So those are some of my... Yeah. This was um, uh, someone from the audience um, would like to see a lightning round here. And so I think that can kind of... That could count for yours if you'd like, uh, Belinda. But this uh, person was asking for one bold and creative idea from each panelist to address displacement. We can go in order, one by one. (laughs) To to address displacement? Mm -hmm. What about... A super abbreviated city process, and I mean within, like, how fast could something get done to subdivide your lot? So if you have um, an, if you have a small home and you've got a 3,000-square-foot lot, then you could do it without going through plan commission or design. Maybe, like, a quick way to add units in dense neighborhoods that are small-scale, because I think keeping units small, even single-family homes, helps people afford them. That's my... I mean, I guess for for me would be really looking at the laws that are in place. That is one thing that's also displacing um, residents as well, too, is that um, families, the tenant-landlord laws are more in favor of landlords. Um, So really addressing that, looking at that, and seeing where we can make laws that support and give tenants and families more rights. Um, sorry, most of my ideas get written down in these reports, so I can start coming with fresh one off of the cuff. It's a little difficult. Um, I mean, one of the things is we can look at the the city owns like three thousand parcels already, so we we're a big landowner. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could take the time to go through this and say. You know, if there's 50 of these that we could put housing on tomorrow, and then we could make that decision by just looking at what we already have to to maximize the potential for housing that, that's in there. So I can go back and do that. <laughs> I think there's something fundamental around public interest. If everyone in here decided it's a good idea for Ananda to move downtown, it will happen. But here's what I know, is that if we stay in the same paralysis that we have for you know, 10, 20, 30 years, nothing will change. That's what I know that's going to happen. Yeah. 
I mean, we see it all the time. And and here's the thing. Me moving in means that more of me moves in. Mm -hmm. And then maybe we're going to have, we're going to be neighbors downtown. And then people are going to see how downtown is changing. And then we're not going to feel like we're foreigners here, right? That we're not feel like we're tourists here, that we actually belong in the city. So when I moved, if you heard my story, but when I moved just down the street, but in an area that is, uh, you know, a little bit like how, you know, condo owned. It's not, there's a mix of rentals, but it's mostly condo owned. My neighbors treated me like I was not, I was putting the garbage out and they were like, what are you doing here? You cannot put the garbage out. You do not live here. I'm like, actually, I've been here for three years. Uh, I have a yellow, bright yellow car that sits in this, you know, in front of my condo. Like, you haven't seen me because there's not that many of me. But I actually live here. So what does it look like to actually uh, build spaces around throughout the city, not just on the south side, that we can actually feel that we belong? And a path to home ownership is really that thing, right? Like if we're doing rental, you're in transit, you know, and the way people see you is in transit. They say like, oh, you're going to be here for another, you know, maybe another generation, but pretty soon you're going to lose a job, you're going to go, blah, blah, blah. But when you own, you're building wealth, you're building, you're participating in an economy in a very different and meaningful way. You have uh, a, a solid ground to lay on, and it's and it gives you a financial, uh, a, a different financial security for you and your family. So it's a different thing, but it is about our interests, our collective interests, to choose the next time the public market comes in, the next new development that is going to come around the corner that we say like, wait. What's, what is the social justice case in this new development? And I wanted to see that. What, how is the city going to apply the racial equity tool to, for all developments moving forward? Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're coming up on 8 o'clock here, so I have one last question for you all. And I wanted to bring it back to something. Ananda, you were talking about, you know, we're talking about, thank you so much. We're talking about this, um, this big, important issue, and I hope that we're all leaving here with um, some new thoughts and ideas about this topic. Um, so maybe some of you are fired up. But I think the, the question is, you know, what can, what can we do about it? So I wanted to ask you, you know, what can we as individuals do about this issue? And, and specifically, what can, um, you know, what should people with privilege be thinking about in this situation who may not have ever had to worry about being displaced from their home? I'm looking around. I, I mean, I mean my, my building... Anyone can, ch- can For some of in. you that know, like, been following me, my building just caught on fire the other day. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I'm just going to look <laughs> to people that have housing stability in a different way than I do, so... You know, I, I hear Ananda say, you know, things aren't changing fast enough. And then I hear neighborhoods saying, oh, my God, it's changing way too fast. We can't take another building anywhere near us build nothing anywhere ever. Um, So, you know, um, as a developer, we're kind of stuck in um, a cycle of, you know, folks that want change to happen faster and folks that don't want to change at all. But, you know, I think that, um, I I guess what I would say is I feel like all the tools that we have in our toolbox financially as a city and as, you know, federally that are created right now are being put to the ultimate use. There's no dollars being wasted. There are no tax credits that are just sitting unused. You know, the city might have some lots, but it's not a ton of stuff. So I think, you know, we do need some creative ideas. And I think um, what people can do is come to panels like this, but get involved in their neighborhoods and ask these questions about what they can do as groups. Because if we want neighborhoods to stay authentic, to be 
a part of the people, to, to be comprised of the people who live there in a community, then those communities need to be a part of addressing some of these issues. Um, because we can keep building four to five story buildings to the extent you'll let us, but we're you know, a little stuck. And I think um, some of these creative ideas need to come from the people who are living in these um, housing mm -hmm. units. Um, yeah, so I think it, it, you know, being involved with your neighborhood and helping to guide the change that is likely coming. So for a neighborhood that's, that's already, you know, sort of falls into this, gentr it's gentrified, there are not housing options, people are barred from being there, you know, being willing to accept change, which might mean a, a new apartment building, especially a new affordable apartment building, those sorts of things. And oftentimes, you know, when the city or developer interacts with the neighborhood, you know, the, what you hear is the people who are uh, against or are concerned about what's happening, and we don't necessarily hear a lot of advocates who want their neighborhood to be more welcoming, to want to increase the number of housing choices. So mm -hmm. if you want to see those things, we need to hear from you, too. Mm -hmm. yes. um. So that's basically, he kind of stated what I was thinking, <laughs> too, so I wanted to hear everybody's song <laughs> first. Um, but I totally agree. Really, I think what I wrote was being more open-minded. Um, really... Being open-minded in the sense that, you know, when there are new developers that are coming in and that are, you know, thinking about doing affordable housing, you have those people that are like, no, 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 not in my backyard. But we want to hear those people that are, you know, advocate for, like, we need this. And we want those people to speak out more. And when we do have these families that do come in that are low income, be open-minded and then and welcoming them because that also plays a role too because a lot of times people don't want to go into these neighborhoods because they're not welcome. They don't have people that looks like them. They don't have their food. They don't have anything of that nature. So like it takes the, the their neighbors and their community to welcome them so that way they can feel also part of the community as well. And I think that would help. So I see... Uh, my colleagues at the city council and, and in the uh, Dane County board as, as colleagues, and I have a lot of respect for them. So I really hope you flood their uh, mailboxes. Um, and with mostly uh, a couple questions. One is, what is the percent of, percentage of affordable housing that we currently have on your alderman district or in your uh, uh, county district? And what uh, you, you know, city alder or county supervisor are uh, doing to diversify our neighborhood and our district. Those are two things, you know, when I said, like, it is public interest. When you become interest that there is more of us in your neighborhoods, that there is more of us feeling uh, that they belong in our neighborhoods, that, that it, it shows. Mm -hmm. It shows. And it will show into policy. It will show into policy. So it, it is a matter of you flooding their, their inboxes and asking those questions and then holding them accountable in the next budget cycle. Well, thank you all for sharing these ideas and thank you all for being here tonight. We really appreciate it.
This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.